You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's March 17th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake here with Joseph Wang, former senior Fed trader. Hi, Joseph. Hey, Maggie. Thanks for inviting me. Great to be back on Real Vision. Yeah, great to see you. So we are sort of in, you know, day two recovering from the Fed, but there's so much else going on as well. And we're going to sort of walk through some of the events, but U.S. equities rallying for a second day in a row. The major indices look like they're tacking on about another three quarters of one percent. But we have everything up. Oil's up nearly 10 percent, a big move. We continue to see those big moves on either side. We have the 10 year bond hanging around uh, two point one nine four percent. Crypto's up. Gold's up. Um, we also have mortgage rates up. Right. Joseph, mortgage rates in the U.S. rose above four percent for the first time in three years. The Fed said that the economy can handle the higher rates. Um, we, the markets seem pretty calm. What do you think? Do you agree? Yeah, I definitely think so. So one way to think about rates is that you have to take into account inflation right, as, as well, right? So if you take into account inflation, inflation is very high, real rates are actually super low right now. And as inflation goes higher, real rates become even lower. So definitely, if you raise nominal rates a little bit, Real rates will still be very low, so the economy can definitely handle it. And the way that Chair Powell describes it, we have a very, very strong labor market. So people, you know, they're getting higher wages, they're getting more money. And so that to me tells me that they are able to high handle prices that are a little bit higher. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because when you listen to everyone, it's it's because so much of this is commodity based, it feels like everyone's not doing well. I mean, you know, I have people talking to me about grocery bills that I didn't even think they looked at them. I mean, it's, you know, you're, it's, you're feeling that kind of sticker shock. So consumer sentiment matters a lot too. Do you think that people feel like those wages are rising quick enough or keeping up with some of the big spikes we've seen? So I think there's some subtlety to this. It really depends on which level of wages you're looking at. Some of the work that I've seen is that when you look at wages from the bottom, bottom, let's say 20%, they've actually risen more than, than inflation. So they're getting real wage gains. And so for them, it's actually, uh, things are working out quite well. Uh, for the, it's actually the upper income people whose wage gains uh, have been, been lower than inflation. So it, it does depend on um, just where you are in income construction. But I think you raise a really good point now. We have a labor market that's on fire, and yet consumer sentiment is really low. That's kind of a conundrum. I think maybe part of that might be reconciled by just who you're asking. Yeah, yeah, because it can feel very, can feel like you're living in a different country, not not only in a different income class, depending on where you find yourself. Interesting that it, it's, the, it's the higher wage people who um, are feeling it and maybe also feeling the volatility in asset markets because we know even though the the, the amount of Americans and this is a very strictly American centered conversation right now, but the amount of Americans who own equities has been rising, but traditionally it tends to be really tilted toward the upper part of the income strat you know stratus. So they they are certainly you know feeling some of this sort of pullback we've seen in equities and just the volatility. Absolutely. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, listen, what happened the past two days, equity market just 
surging higher today, commodities surging higher. There's a lot of volatility. And I think a lot of it might have to do just the just some of the underlying mechanics within the market. Some of the things that I've read that I, I find persuasive, for example, um, we've read a lot of commodity companies who are basically blowing up because a commodity company, let's say, buys, uh, produces commodities, and then sells forward their production to hedge it, right? It's a prudent thing to do. Uh, but when the market keeps rallying, they, they, get, they lose money on their hedges, and sometimes they need to get uh, emerging liquidity lines. And if they can't take it, then they have to take their hedges off. That means they have to be buying those futures, squeezing it higher. So some of the, some of the volatility we've seen in the past, let's say, a couple months might have been just some of these commodity producers getting squeezed. And now, perhaps that they're out, some of the speculators come in and they're pushing oil higher. I think if you look at some of the fundamental work, people, a lot of people are looking at this and saying, well, Russia is probably going to be offline for a while. So, you know, if you think of it as a supply and demand perspective, that has to have a big impact from a fundamental sense on on a, a lot of commodity prices, not just oil. So yeah. uh, what's what's strange might not be that it imploded, but that it actually was got so low to begin with. And now maybe it's going back to, to more fundamental based. Uh, with the equity market, I think it might also be technical as well. One of the things that I've noticed is that the volatility has come down a lot. And so we had some tail events heading into the Fed meeting. A lot of people might have been hedging for, um, let's say, a very hawkish Fed. Now, when that didn't materialize and they got out of the hedges, crushing volatility lower. And so when volatility gets low, some of those VANA flows uh, come in. And so people by basically, because volatility is lower, the dealers don't have to hedge as much so they can buy back their shorts and that's upward fuel on the market. So that could be some some factors as well. So, uh, so when I look at these huge volatile events, I, I tend to think there's some mechanical uh, basis for them. Spoken like a true trader. And it's important to keep that in mind, I think, because we do tend to be looking for an explanation or, or you know, looking to fundamentals to try to justify what's going on. Um, it, are you looking at, given that, do you think that, 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 that those dynamics have worked their way through? And should we be looking at fundamentals now? And what does that tell you in terms of commodities and equities? So I, I never look at fundamentals. Only the, so only in the sense that some people act on fundamentals. Fundamentally, for me, fundamentals mean who's buying and who's selling and how much money they have. And if you have some people who look at, you know, quote unquote fundamentals, then you want to see how they're playing their game and how, how, how much money they have, because uh, that's how much they can influence prices. Um, when I look at what happened, VIX basically down to, let's say, the mid to low 20s, I think that that, that phase is over. So we can basically continue to go down or we can continue to go up. Um, the same thing for the oil market. When you see the open interest going very low, that means that more people can come back in and maybe that can begin a new cycle. So that that's how I look at that. Um, just looking at the geopolitical situation, I think that's probably going to be the bigger driver of how markets behave in the coming weeks. And the thing is that What's happening with Russia, that's, that's kind of a, I think of it as a regime shift. You know, you can't just kind of destroy someone's economy and then turn around and be like, hey, we're friends, right? You know, don't take it personally. Now, there's a lot of bad blood there. And, and I think that is going to make it very difficult for things to get back to where they were, um, let's say, before the Ukraine incident. And so that's going to mean ongoing commodity shortages. That's going to mean higher commodity prices. And that has an effect throughout the markets most notably yeah. in inflation. So if you have a mod higher commodity prices, usually you have higher inflation, which in turn hurts um, fixed income prices, which through, let's say, uh, 
risk parity or let's say 60-40 portfolios hurts uh, equity markets. So they're all connected in that sense because the people who buy bonds also buy equities. So just from my perspective, I think we're still uh, in a very risk negative uh, regime and will be for, uh, for the foreseeable future. Especially Interesting. Since- we have a question from Florian asking, what's the best asset class to invest in now? And since we're talking about that portfolio construction, um, I thought it'd be good to get that question in. You know, how are you if you're if you feel that way about risk assets, what is the best asset class to be in right now? So I like energy a lot and I, I've I've owned a lot of energy. So, I mean, it depends on who you are. So you, you can buy a producer. They will give you good income. Uh, you know, dividends are likely rising some or if you if you like futures i mean if you buy further out the curve you you get some roll yield i think the the curve i mean uh it's heavily backward dated so um you could get some roll yield and of course you get the uh, tax treatment if, if you're in the us so uh futures contracts are taxed differently i so commodities energy and if you want you could i think that uh I mean, if you have such a mandate you can also just sell sell let's say tech or uh, the indexes, for example. Mm. It's funny because this is a day when we've got some, I mean, this always happens, doesn't it? But we have, uh, I think it was folks at JP Morgan coming out and saying, okay, the, you know, the, the stock bubbles burst, you know, now's a good time to be going back into these high beta stocks. Um, the, the worst of it's over. It sounds like you fundamentally disagree with that. So, so I look at things from the mechanics of the financial system and if you have higher inflation, that's one thing. And the other thing you're having is you're having a very hawkish Fed. And those two things mechanically hurt the fixed income market. You're basically haircutting fixed income assets. And that has to, through these portfolio managers who own fixed income and risk assets, necessarily implies that they're going to have to sell some of their risk assets. So you can think of the Fed basically indirectly pushing down risk assets. So it, I, I don't think that we're going to go back and have like a bull market and go to all-time highs. I think that the trend is still lower. And honestly, that's kind of a policy choice as well. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? If they're trying to tackle, you know, it's interesting. We were just talking about, you know, the, the dynamic. I think you rightly point out if you force a major because of what's happened with Russia, it's hard to imagine you're going to sort of bounce back in the way that you would if you were talking about another cycle. Um, This is a, this has the potential to sort of, realign things in a geopolitical way that we haven't seen in some time. Um, and so much of the, the, at least in the commodity space, um, in inflation, they were already, it was already clearly happening, but you put that on top of it. How, and yet the Fed, you know, the Fed in its statement yesterday talks all about trying to get a handle on inflation. This is, we're behind the curve, price stability is our mandate. How are higher interest rates going to do anything about what's driving commodity prices higher? It's a great. I, it's a great question. I I think you could even take it even broader. How do higher interest rates work at all? I mean, let's say that you have instead of let's say the Fed raises interest rates by two percent, are you actually going to change your spending differently because interest rates are a little bit more? If you're a company, are you going to invest less? If you are a retail person, are you actually going to put it into your money market account? earn, let's say, one and a half percent rather than go and buy a new car. I, it's hard for me to see how that actually makes a difference. Uh, from my perspective, the biggest impact Fed policy has is through the financial markets. So I, I don't really think that the Fed has that much of an impact 
on the real economy as in, unless it does things very drastically. The easiest way to see this, in my view, is to look what happened in the post-GFC world. We have 0% interest rates, we have quantitative easing, and yet the real economy didn't even do all that much. Uh, I think the truth is, when it comes to real economy stuff, purchasing, buying, investing, the price of money is just one input out of many considerations. For the Fed to think that makes a big difference, I think, is to vastly overstate the power of uh, the price of money when it comes to the real economy. Yeah, However, that's, a, that's a fantastic observation um, and one that that seems to be, you know, to prove true when we look at look at what's happened. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, the Fed, the Fed has signaled. It, it, however, I mean, however, 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 however. However, the Fed has a lot of control over financial assets. Yeah. And that, I think, is how uh, Fed policy actually works in the post-GFC world. So in the post-GFC yeah. world, you see Bernanke being like, oh, let's have a wealth effect. So I can't uh, encourage investment in sending. Maybe I will make everyone wealthier. Maybe you own that house. Maybe you own that stock. Maybe it goes up a lot. Maybe you go and take that money and you go buy something. Maybe that will stimulate the economy. And so I think of the financial, I think of monetary policy as primarily impacting the economy through the financial uh, wealth channel. And that's where they could do something. They could kind of make the stock market go lower, make and make housing prices go, maybe not down, but at least not rise as much. And when you do that, though, that affects aggregate demand because people have less wealth to spend. And so if you have less wealth to spend, less demand, in theory, I think you could at least slow inflation down a little bit. Yeah, that 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 may be what they're trying to do, but that's a that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because that suggests that they can they can soft land things. And I think that's where a lot of the skepticism comes in. I, I actually want to play a clip because we, we were talking about uh, this, uh, I was talking about this yesterday with uh, Jeff Snyder from Alhambra Investments. I know that you and Jeff have talked in the past, and he was, you know, he's looking at the Fed's narrative and then putting it against the the bond market and the yield curve, and suggesting that, you know, the the bond market is is also skeptical of the Fed and and telling a different kind of story. Let's have a listen to that clip. So yes, the Federal Reserve does see these things in the marketplace. How can you not? I mean, when the five year to ten years inverted in the yield curve. That's sort of something you have to pay attention to. But they have grown very comfortable, entirely too comfortable, just setting aside the bond market signals and saying, well, we're going to do this because we believe it's the correct action. And we think the bond market is eventually going to agree with us. So their their conception is that the yield curve is inverted today, but that it'll steepen tomorrow once it gets on board with the message that the Federal Reserve is sending. When that's completely backwards, as history has shown time and time and time again over the last 15 years. Pay attention to the euro dollar futures curve. Pay attention to the yield curve because what happens in those curves is what the Fed is going to be doing, whether it thinks it's going to, whether it thinks it will today or not. You know, that was the, absolutely the case just a couple of years ago. Euro dollar futures inverted in 20, uh, June of 2018. The Fed was 
hawkish to the moon. And what happened in June of, uh, by 2019? The Fed was cutting rates when it thought it was going to be hiking rates. So the Fed has everything backward. And that full interview is available on Essential Plus and Pro Tears on RealVision.com. The Fed's got it all backwards. Uh, I I would also, or the other way to say it is that they they know, but they they don't want to say exactly what they think they know. I don't know. What what do you think? Yeah, so I I think a lot of people look at the yield curve as as giving you information about uh, what the Fed is doing right or wrong or what the economic condition is. And and I respect that. And I think that the yield curve has a very good track record. But I think that things are really different if you look at the world pre-GFC and the world post-GFC. Now, pre-GFC, you had a lot of, basically the market was private participants, a lot of people trying to make money. And so you can have a lot of people who are very keen on economic conditions going and trading the yield curve, right? So post-GFC, things are completely different. Um, They're different in two ways. One is that you have a lot more official sector involvement. Fed, for example, is there buying treasuries. It holds five and a half trillion dollars, and that's a big number. And you look at across the pond, uh, the ECB does something similar. The Bank of Japan goes one step further and it has yield curve control. It's pinning down its tenure. Now, all that, in my view, has to have some kind of impact on, on the price of, uh, let's say, the price of bonds. And not just that, though. You have a lot of regulation that basically forces a lot of very, very big players to buy a lot of bonds. Banks, for example, they, they have to buy, well, they, they're incentivized strongly to hold uh Treasuries, and that's the true in the trillions. So when you look at bond prices, I think it's very careful uh, to not try to read too much into price because everyone buys something for a different reason. Now, another analogy that I like is that if you look at Tesla when it was trading above a thousand, would you look at that and say, obviously the market is assuming Tesla is going to take over the entire electric car sector. In fact, everyone else is going to be pushed out Tesla. Everyone will drive Teslas in the future. I don't think you would assume that, right? It's just a whole bunch of people buying for for whatever reason. And I think if you look at any financial asset, that's really all it is. Uh, it's just a bunch of people buying and selling with different views of the future, different mandates, different risk preferences. And this is especially true in the bond market because we know who, who participates in them. A whole bunch of people who are not in there to make money, who are in there because they have to, or, or in there because of policy reasons. And because of that, I don't actually take the, the yield curve very seriously. Um, I, I just don't see any reason to. And more importantly, I think there's a couple ways you can look at this. So if you have an un- inverted yield curve, do you think of it as actually causing a recession or do you think of it as a signal for recession? Now, if you think of it as a signal for recession, I don't really worry about that. In, To be honest, I think the Fed is going to fix that through quantitative tightening. They're going to vastly increase the supply of bonds, and that will just straighten it out, and so that will disappear. Uh, Your curves invert and uninvert all the time. Now, if you think of it as a cause for recession, I think that is also not true anymore in the post-GFC world. In the pre-GFC world, you can think of it potentially as a mechanism for causing recession because you had a very bank-centric world. A lot of banks were borrowing in the capital markets, adding a spread, and then lending it. And so when you have, let's say, short rates going higher, what would happen is that as short rates going higher and long rates staying low, so the spread compressing or the curve inverting, you would decrease the margins that banks were able to 
earn, potentially reducing credit creation, and thus possibly causing a recession or lower economic activity. But that's not the way that banking system works post-GFC. Banks fund themselves with retail deposits, so they don't really care about money market funding rates. So whether or not the short rates go up really doesn't impact them all that much. That's a that's a fantastic explanation. And GFC, I think everyone probably knows, but the great financial crisis is is what we're referring to. It, it's 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 so sort of baked in and, and cuts across so much of what we do that it's it's its own acronym now. Um, it, I I want to ask you. You brought up the the Fed balance sheet, and I think that's so important uh, because we we know now that, and this is perhaps more important than say the twenty five basis point rate hike is that they say they're going to start winding down the balance sheet. They said this before. They've never really been able to do it since they first initiated and came up with this type of scheme. They've tried, they've started, um, and then had to stop. They didn't give very many details about when and what it's going to look like. What are you expecting? And could this be more aggressive than maybe the market's anticipating? So, Powell has actually been, I think, surprisingly open about his plans. I, when I was watching his press conference, it seemed that he was very delighted to get that question about the, the balance sheet side. And he was, <laughs> I was surprised that no one asked it. But when he finally got the question, he was able to deliver the message that he no doubt was intending to deliver. And that was that he's going to begin quantitative tightening in May and look for the minutes for their exact plan. It will be like the last plan, but more aggressive. So how much more aggressive? So if you recall, so Powell gave a testimony before the House a couple of weeks ago, and he was suggesting that he can get the balance sheet down to where he wants it to be in about three years. Now, the balance sheet is about $9 trillion. If you conservatively look at what the balance sheet was pre-COVID, add, let's say, a trillion, a trillion or two, um, just to count for higher GDP and more cash. So my estimate would be, let's say, a normal balance sheet now would be six trillion, so that's three trillion decrease in three years, one trillion a year. That works out to about eighty billion a month. During the last time we did quantitative tightening, the most aggressive the Fed ever got was fifty billion uh, a month, and that was only maintained for uh, several months, less than a year. So they're envisioning a very aggressive quantitative tightening. So in my view, um, that is very likely to have upward pressure on the um, on the curve and probably steepen it. Um, how the market is anticipating that, I think that's really hard to know. Um, like I mentioned before, a lot of the market participants, just non-economic players, that's one thing. And I, I'm really not sure how, how you can price something like that. Um, part of it has to do with how the treasury issues as well. The treasury has a lot of power in terming the, the shape of the curve. For example, it can issue more 10-year and more 30 years. So then you see the longer, far longer, far end go up, or it can issue more bills, and then you won't see anything happen. So I think it's a difficult thing to price. And um, my sense is that it's not really in the market. Mm. Do you think they're able to pull it off um, without having unexpected or unintended consequences? No, absolutely not. <laughs> so so this is a, it's a it's a really complicated machine. It's it's not that it's not their fault anyway. It's just really hard to anticipate. A lot of times, so but think about it this way: you have let's say a trillion or two trillion dollars of debt you're going to issue. You got to find buyers for that, and you think that there are buyers out there because they've they've always been buyers. But who are they, and what prices are they willing to accept? 
that's that's really hard to know in advance. And so it's something that we probably have to gradually stumble towards and might hit an air pocket on the way there. One of the interesting things that I, I've noticed is that liquidity in the treasury market is, is not all that great. So we think of cash treasuries as the deepest market in the world, and it is. So on average, every day, we do about $600 billion in, in cash treasuries, definitely the deepest market in the world. But you also have to keep in mind that the number of treasuries outstanding continues to grow and continues to grow enormously every year uh, to the tune of, let's say, net issuance this year is about one and a half trillion, and it will be like that going forward. So the amount of treasuries grows much, much faster uh, than than the, the amount of liquidity, the, amount, the daily treasury outstanding. So it's very easy to hit these air pockets if you issue too much. So that's, I think, what, in my view, what could break as we go into this. The last time around, it was a repo market. This time around, I would be more watching about, let's say, to the belly or to the long end of the curve. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We have a question from Bill uh, on the exchange, uh, and you're going to have to explain this to all of us. He's asking for explanation, and I'm just going to read it like you wrote it. Zoltan brought up the FRA iOS spread widening in his Credit Suisse newsletter. Can you talk about what that is, what it signals, and where can retail go to look it up? Yeah, so... FRA, OIS, FRA is basically, it's a forward rate agreement. It's LIBOR, basically. So um, people want to know, when if you're a market participant, you want to know whether or not there's stress in the, in the financial system. And traditionally, what you would look at is you would look at LIBOR. LIBOR was the rate that banks could borrow in in the short-term money markets. Uh, the standard, of course, is three-month LIBOR. So if three-month LIBOR is, let's say, 2%, how do you know if that's high? You have to judge it by a standard, and the standard you judge it by is the Fed policy rate, and that's proxied by OIS. OIS is overnight index swap, and that's just the let's say the the Fed's the Fed's funds rate is overnight rate, and the OIS will make that into like a term rate. So you want to look at that spread between LIBOR and OIS to see how much stress is in the system. Um, LIBOR OIS is a spot rate. FRA OIS would be a forward rate. So if you're looking at FRA OIS, let's say in June, then you're looking at uh, what the market expects the spread of uh, LIBOR and OIS to be in June. And usually when that spread widens, that means there's more credit risk in the system. That means potentially there's more um, a chance for, for uh, things to go bad. Now, I and think... Go ahead. Yeah. So that is a good thing to watch. Um, not so much because it itself is an important indicator, and that, but it's connected to many other things that are. So pre-GFC, okay, I'm going to go through this pre-GFC post. Pre-GFC, banks funded themselves in the money markets. So banks were borrowing short and lending long, you know, as we think banks do. And so when you have um, LIBOR going higher, there's a concern that maybe a bank won't be able to roll over its short-term loans. If that's the case, then it has to fire sell its assets. And then, you know, things break. 
Now, in the post, why would that be? Why would that be happening? Why would it, it, I'm assuming this was this was mentioned recently? Why would that be happening? Is it could it be due, due to the geopolitical and what's happening with Russian banks, or or is it more related to what we're seeing? Because you know we just had the ECB, the Bank of England. We didn't even get a chance to talk about that. They also met and raised today. Why would that? Why would that be happening? Do you do you? Have yeah. A- so there's definitely more stress in the system. We have uh, you know conflict in Ukraine. We froze out a very, very big and important country. So there's definitely some stress there. And I think part of it is also that, um, well, okay, well, there's two things here. One is that people don't really know where the bodies might be. And so there's some apprehension there. And two, it's that there may be some banks that are more commodity exposed, not the banks themselves, but they may have clients. For example, if you are Glencore or a Tref figure out and you will need margin from a bank to make your loans and so that bank has to go and borrow that so there may be some connection there as well but bigger picture though that post gfc banks don't really fund themselves in the money markets so there's really no chance of a bank having a liquidity crisis so that's just off the table um, it's been engineered so that being said when the way that people price for OAS, they do it by looking at a wide range of indicators and so it itself it's is a, is a reasonably good indicator for stress in the financial system, although it does not, in my view, indicate any liquidity sp- stress in the banking sector. Right, and well, we more do have, sentiment. A fantastic yeah, yeah. explanation. So we do have stress, of course. Obviously, we, we have a lot of things going on. <laughs> That's right. No, no surprise that it would be showing up. Uh, we have a question from Rohit. Do you think we are heading to a hyperinflation event at this point? No, 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 absolutely not. I, hyperinflation happens when the government is falling. So when you have no confidence in the government, maybe there's an internal revolution, maybe there's a war coming, the government's going to be deposed. When that happens, all the uh, liabilities of the government become worthless. Um, uh, definitely no, not in danger of that at all. Uh, that being said, we could still have high and persistent inflation, you know, say four, five percent. And that's very different from hyperinflation. And I don't I don't worry about hyperinflation at all. And we have a question from Greg uh, from the RV site. Eighty billion per month balance sheet reduction requires outright selling. Do you think that's really in the cards? So it depends on your asset class. So that's a really good question. So. The Fed is going to roll off both treasuries and agency MBS. If you look at the maturity profile of treasuries, they're they're very much front-loaded. So you have a bunch rolling off this year, next year, and a bit less in the third year. Um, There are ways that they can manage this so that they don't have to sell anything. So, I mean, if you add up all the treasuries that are rolling off in the next three years, it's, you know, it's, it's... comfortably exceeds two trillion so that that's fine for the treasury part um, now if you want to so of the three trillion you have to, if you're maintaining that ratio of two to one then you're going to roll off a trillion dollars in mortgages now that the mortgage part is the harder part so the way that mortgages get get paid off on a fed's balance sheet it, it, there's two ways one is that you know you just do regular p i payments the second is that the, the mortgage is prepay so let's say interest rates go to zero a whole bunch of people who had mortgages refinance. What that means is that they take out new mortgage loans to repay the loans uh, that that are held on the Fed. So that's that would quickly reduce the the Fed's mortgages. But that's unlikely. So the most likely course is that uh, the Fed just collects PI payments 
And that's estimated to be about $25 billion a year, so about $300 billion a year. And towards the third year, that's going to be a bit low. So there is some possibility, I think, of some mortgage sales in the third year. And Fed presidents have been hinting at that. So I think that's very much in the cards. Uh, TC is asking if you have a view on the distribution of treasury issuance moving forward. I, you know, I, I think so. That's a good question. And I think that often arises in the context of um, the, the treasury perhaps issuing more treasury bills to kind of, I guess, sterilize QT a bit and take advantage of all that cash parked into the RRP. Um, in, in my view, I, I don't think that they'll do that. Um, monetary policy is the purview of the Fed. I, I don't see why they would interfere with that. So um, I, I think that they were just going to just keep things as they are right now. Um, they probably, so they were expected to reduce issuance, uh, cut coupons across the curve. Uh, that's probably changed um, now that Kiwi up ended abruptly. So that's something I'm watching and um, definitely watching. And, and it's, very, it's a very important question to see how, how rates will play out. Fantastic. Joseph, we've got to leave it there. Always fabulous to have you on, but especially in a week when we're dealing with these central bank moves uh, against a very volatile backdrop. So we so appreciate your insights. Thanks so much. I love coming on Real Vision. Thanks so much for inviting me and have a great day, everyone. Awesome. Thanks so much. Ash will be here tomorrow with Jim Bianco to wrap up this really busy week. In the meantime, the conversation continues on the exchange on realvision.com. Good luck. Take care. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.